0: Welcome to the crossings. Uh, We are in a series here uh, because God is, you can. Uh, Last week we talked about the essentiality of faith. Uh, If there were not a God, we would have no hope, we would have no forgiveness, we would have no future, we would have uh, no purpose. Uh, so the essentiality that God is present, that we can put our faith in him, that he hears us, that he listens to us, those are all things we fundamentally need to understand, and there's something else we need to understand, and that is that forgiveness is available to us. Uh, if you've ever been paralyzed by grief, if you've ever uh, felt so bad about yourself that you just couldn't move in life, anybody in here ever, ever felt that way? Okay, I have. Uh, guilt is one of those things that can shackle you, it can hold you down, it can weigh you down. Uh, it can also do some good things. And so we're going to talk through uh, that topic today. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about David as well. Uh, King David is a major character in the Bible. He wrote much of the book of Psalms. There's a lot of stories about him that we can learn from. He was a man after God's own heart, but he also was a man that struggled greatly with uh with sin in his life, and so there's stuff to learn from that, Uh, but I'm going to let Mike go ahead and start reading uh, Psalm 38.4. You've got some notes in your bulletin. If you want to pull those out, it's going to have most of the scriptures we're going to look at this morning on there, along with some places for you to take some notes. We take those notes, and we use them uh, in our small groups and throughout different, different things throughout the week, so I encourage you to write that stuff down. It helps you remember, helps you, as you remember this stuff, apply it. So that's kind of the point of it. Uh, But I'm going to ask Mike to go ahead and read that first scripture, and then we're going to jump into our lesson today. My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. Okay, can you read that one more time, Mike? My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. Okay. Now, this is in the Bible. This is written by a guy named David to express how he was feeling when he had messed up really, really bad. He says in this instance, his guilt overwhelms him. It is a burden on him. Um, Back in the 50s, there was a guy in the Air Force who was a major who started committing crimes. Now, anybody in here, military? I know some of us are. If you're a major in the military, how high is your rank? You're up there, like it's a high rank. So if you're a major in, in like the Navy or the Air Force, you're making a good living, you've got status, like, you, you've got your life together if you're a major. Well, this guy is a major, and suddenly he has to go to, uh, he has to be institutionalized twice as a major because he was suicidal. Turns out, not only was he suicidal and having to be institutionalized, he also uh, had been committed, uh, he had been convicted of forgery. And he had been convicted of stealing. This is a major, so he went to jail, right? Um, Not only that, for years he had been drinking heavily all the time to the point that it was affecting his life at home. His marriage was falling apart. His relationship with his kids were falling apart. Now, this guy had been a model officer headed for this promising career. But then there was something that happened that changed the course of his life. You see, he was uh, in the Air Force, part of the mission that didn't drop the bomb on Hiroshima. But they, he was part of the, the group that went and checked the weather ahead of the bomb being dropped at Hiroshima. So he wasn't actually the one that was in the plane that dropped the bomb. He just kind of helped clear the way for the bomb. And then after the bomb was dropped in World War II... Uh, ended the war, but, but he started having all these dreams and nightmares about women and children in Japan that were killed in that blast. And he had tons and tons of guilt. And so he went from being a model officer and somebody to look up to in the military to be in this guy whose life was just falling apart. Through counseling and everything, they figured out that he was uh, trying to punish himself unconsciously because of the guilt that he felt over being part of that bombing in Japan. He was unconsciously trying to bring this bad stuff on him. And guys, here's the truth. That's just one example. Guilt unchecked will wreck your life. Guilt unchecked will wreck your life. Now, guilt can be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. What Satan wants to do is he wants to get in there and he wants to use that guilt to to just incapacitate you. He wants to use your guilt to to make you believe things about yourself that aren't true. To believe that you could never be forgiven or to believe that you're different than everybody else. To believe that uh, somehow you're especially bad. That's what Satan wants to do. David struggled with this, okay? He would have been attacked whenever he was feeling low. He would have been attacked by these things. But, But David is a guy who, while he struggled horribly with guilt at times in his life. He's also a guy who writes things like this in Psalm 32. He says, what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. Now, this is the same guy who just was writing about being burdened, right? This is a different passage. What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys... When sins are covered over, what relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record? See, there can be a positive side to guilt. It doesn't all just have to be bad. A couple of essential facts I'm going to give you about guilt, and we're going to jump into some practical, okay? Here's some important information about guilt and forgiveness. First of all, here's truth one, okay? Guilt is a tool that can be used by God. It can be a good thing. Uh, We live in a culture that never wants anybody to feel guilty about anything, but guilt can be a good thing, okay? It can be a good thing. David describes God's use of guilt in his life in Psalm 32, verse 4. He says, The pain never let up. For your hand of conviction was heavy on my heart. My strength was sapped. My inner life dried up like a spiritual drought within my soul. Does that sound pleasant? Okay, he's describing not a great time in my life. Like I just feel like my, my heart is a barren wasteland. You know, like I, I'm not feeling great about life right now. That doesn't sound like fun. That sounds like it hurts. But you want to know what that pain caused David to do? caused him to turn away from the sin that was in his life. It caused him to turn to God. Uh, There was a kid on the news a few years ago, really interesting story. It was this four-year-old little girl who had to wear oven mitts outside and she had to wear a helmet outside and she had to wear shin guards and then her mom had to follow her around when she would go play outside as a four-year-old little girl. You want to know why? She couldn't feel pain. She had a disorder that made it where she could not feel physical pain. And so her mom had to follow her around because if she stuck her hand in a bunch of broken glass, she wouldn't know. She would just cut herself up. If she was running down the hallway and smacked her head on the doorknob you know, and started bleeding, she would just bleed. Like she didn't even care. She didn't feel it. What's pain for? Pain is to alert you that something's wrong that needs to be fixed, right? Physical pain, whenever you bang your finger... You feel physical pain in your finger because something's wrong. It needs to be protected. It needs to be nursed. It needs to be fixed. What about when you feel spiritual pain? What is that telling you? That's telling you something's wrong spiritually. That's telling you something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. Whenever you're in that pain, God didn't design pain just for you to live in pain. You guys realize that, right? God did not make pain. God made pain. Okay, we get that? He didn't make it for you just to live in it. He made it as a tool to be used. But it's it's not when it's used by God just to hurt you. God uses pain and uses guilt to convict and to change me. That's God's use of it. Okay, this is the proper use of guilt. When we talk about what is guilt good for, this is what it's good for. It's good to convict you and change you. That's what it's good for. That's how God uses it. While God uses guilt in a positive way, uh, we've also got another character in the story, and that's Satan. And while God uses guilt in a good way, Satan misuses guilt in a bad way. You see, guilt is a tool that is misused by Satan. It's used by God. It's misused by Satan. And while guilt can be a good thing when it's used by God... When Satan takes it, he manipulates it, he twists it. Satan's goal is not for guilt to convict you and and foster repentance. Satan's goal is for guilt to make you fall into despair and for you to get stuck in it. That's Satan's goal. Satan's goal is for you to walk through life feeling like you are especially bad and that you could never be forgiven by God. Okay? Some of us have a natural proclivity toward feeling that way. I do. I I grew up being molested. Uh, whenever you have really bad stuff that happens to you when you're a little kid, you tend to internalize uh, certain truths that you think are true that are actually lies. One of those truths is uh, that I am especially bad. Whenever you're sexually abused as a little kid, that's usually, at some point, you're going to fall into the camp where you feel like a piece of crap. And so if you grow up feeling that way, when you get to be an adult, how's Satan going to use guilt in your life? You already have a natural proclivity toward feeling like a piece of trash. Anytime life throws something at you, anytime there's adversity, anytime there's conflict in the family, anytime there's conflict in the relationship or whatever, this is where my mind goes, I'm a piece of crap. I'm a piece of crap. Guys, if Satan can get you to believe deep down that you are just a piece of crap, what are you going to do in life? You're, you, if you believe internally that you're a piece of crap, you are going to lower the expectations for your life because you're just a piece of crap. I'm going to expect out of life what a piece of crap will get because that's what I am. And that's how you live. And I know this is wrong and I shouldn't do it, but I'm a piece of crap, so I'm going to do it anyway. I know I shouldn't drink this. I know I shouldn't smoke this. I know I shouldn't take this. I know I shouldn't sleep with this person. I know I shouldn't punch this person in the face. I know I shouldn't cuss this person out. I know I shouldn't smack this kid around. I know I shouldn't. I know I should, but I don't care cuz I'm a piece of crap and I'm going to do what a piece of crap does cuz what's the point? That's what Satan wants to do with your guilt. That's what Satan wants to do with your guilt. He either is going to make you really mean to people or he's going to make you really mean to yourself. That's what Satan's going to do with your guilt. And he'll misuse it. There was a guy in Corinth. We talk about this guy a lot. We talk about the guy who slept with his stepmom in Corinth. He's just a great example, right? There was a church that started back in the first century, and it was in a very progressive city named Corinth. Corinth was a lot like San Francisco. I used to live in San Francisco. I used to really like having my friends from out of town come to visit me in San Francisco, and then I would drive through the part of town where everybody's naked, That was fun, right? Um, You guys may not know this, but it was actually legal to do that in San Francisco. uh, Back when I lived there, you could be naked in the city and nobody cared. That's shocking when you're used to clothes, right? Uh, Corinth was a lot the same way. Corinth had places like that back in the first century that were just crazy. Even their cultural standards of the day, uh, Corinth was way more progressive and out there than other places. The church in Corinth was the same way. Because they had all these people that were converting and coming into the church in Corinth. And people that had very progressive ideas and, and, you know, were very forward-thinking, they thought, on a lot of things. And there was a young man there that became a Christian who decided he would hook up with his stepmom. And uh, the church just was okay with that. You know, we're progressive, we think, we think forward, we're going we're gonna to show this guy the grace of God. You just go on right ahead, you know, hook it up with with whatever her name is, and and we're going to be okay with that. Now, Paul got the message about this, and uh, Paul's response is in 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to read about it. He writes to this church, and part of what he tells them is, this guy is living in sin. You need to remove him from your fellowship in order for him to realize how serious this sin is. You need to remove him from your fellowship. So literally, Paul's instruction was here's a guy who is claiming to be a Christian, he's claiming to be a disciple, yet he is living in a way that is completely contrary to what we teach. Blatantly. It wasn't like a hidden sin, like this was blatant, okay? You need to go sit down with this young man and tell him he cannot come back to your church as long as he's living that way. Did you guys know that's in the Bible? Okay, some of you in here are just learning... You probably have not heard this before. It's actually in the Bible. Uh, We have instructions when somebody is claiming to follow Jesus, but then living in a way that is completely contrary to Jesus, we are instructed in the Bible to tell them, hey, if this is how you're going to live, this isn't for you. Until this changes, you you need to go. Now, what happened is they told this young man that, and guess what happened? Apparently, he was convicted because by the time you get to the second letter, Second Corinthians, Paul's instruction had changed to the church because they had exercised church discipline. They had removed this young man from their fellowship. Guys, the point of that was not to kick the kid out of the church. You know what the point of that was? Anybody? The point of it was to get him to turn away from his sin. Okay, hey, let me ask you a question for any of you in here who thinks that what, what I'm saying is harsh, okay? That this idea of church discipline is harsh. What is going to happen to that kid if he doesn't turn away from his sin? What's going to happen to him? He is going to die and he's going to be cut off from God for an eternity. He's going to be cut off from the Lord if he dies in that sin. Okay, what's going to happen to the people inside the church who see his example? If he doesn't change, what's going to happen to them? Okay, it's going to, it's going to affect them, right? One of the things people don't understand when they come into the church that I'm thinking about, like, let me just throw this out there, cohabitating couples, okay, if you're not married, you don't, you don't live together. That's something we teach here at the crossings. We frequently have young couples that come in here that are living together, not married, and we have to, we have to talk with them about that. One of the things that I cite is you're coming, especially if you're coming in and they're saying they're Christians, but they're not married and they're living together. I've got a problem with that. I don't think that's right. I think God has a problem with that. But another issue is what's the example you're setting for all the kids? Okay, you want to come in here and live with your boyfriend. You say you're not having sex or whatever, which probably isn't true. Uh, But even if it is, your example is bad. Okay, you're affecting the kids in the church by your example. So in this, in this Corinthian situation, this guy's allowed to sleep with his stepmom and come into the assembly like it's no big deal. What does that say to every kid in the, in the assembly? This kind of behavior is okay. Okay, so you've got the young man, you've got the church. Who else do we need to worry about in this situation? The, the people outside the church that knew that young man, what are they going to think about the church? What are they gonna think? Is this a place where you go to get help and get get connected to God? Or is this a place where you just go and are religious and fake it? Seriously. We do not need another fake religious group of people in the world. Those are not the kinds of people God uses to help anybody. Those are social clubs where people get together and and just kinda waste time. Guys, if we're gonna be real about this, we've gotta be real. This behavior was going to hurt a lot of people if it wasn't corrected. So when Paul tells the church, hey, go tell this kid, if you're going to live this way, you can't come here. Guys, that was an act of grace. That was not harsh. That was an act of grace. That was good for the kid, it was good for the church, and it was good for the world. What was bad for the kid, bad for the church, and bad for the world is just letting that slide. It was going to kill him. And so the church is instructed to remove this young man. They do. That means the next time he came to church, when he was sleeping with his stepmom, he shows up with stepmom on his arm. Guess what they told him at the door? Sorry. As long as you're living this way, you cannot come in. How do you think that would have felt? How do you think that would have felt? If you showed up out there and you were doing something... You weren't supposed to, and you knew it, and everybody knew it, and somebody met you at the door and said, Sorry, you can't come in today, today, to this assembly. How would that have felt? Okay, now, I want you to r- remind you this was not a new guy. This was not his, he was not a first time visitor to this church. He wasn't just getting to know people. This was a member of this church that knew better, that knew he was living in sin. He knew he was doing wrong. So when he was met at the door and they said, Hey, you need to, take care of this. Guess what he did? The kid repented. The kid stopped doing what he was doing that was hurting him. It was hurting the stepmom. It was hurting the church and it was hurting the world. He repented. And then guess what Paul instructed the church to do? He instructed the church to protect this kid from Satan's next logical attack which is going to be to make this kid who'd messed up really, really bad fall into so much despair and guilt that he could never get out. I want him to get stuck in it. That's Satan's attack. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians. Now, this is after they've disciplined the kid. Here's his instruction. He says, so now, this is after he's repented. He says, so now instead, you should forgive and console him. Okay, this is after the kid had been disciplined. This is after the kid had repented. He is now coming back to the church saying, I've turned away from the sin. Could you please let me me back? Paul says, forgive and console him for this reason, so that he might not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This is so important, church. Whenever you have messed up really, really bad, when you have sinned, when you have lived in sin, when you have been unfaithful, when you have known that what you were doing is wrong and you did it anyway, Satan's goal will be to get you to become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow to get you to sit down and cry and never get out of that puddle of tears. Satan will want you to get so focused on you and your shortcomings and what you can't do that that's all you look at. You know what we call that? Navel-gazing. Just looking down at you. right? You're navel-gazing, right? Satan wants you to look at you and nobody else. Do you want to know what's common among people who are living in despair and depression? They are looking at themselves. You want to find you want somebody that's depressed? Go go find somebody that's depressed. I've struggled with depression. I know what it is to be clinically depressed, okay? I'm not trying to be insensitive. Um my manic depression runs in my family and uh, mental illness and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, so I I know about depression. I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to be medicated. I know all that stuff. But when you are super duper depressed, who is your focus on? Do you guys get that? When you are super duper depressed, your focus is primarily on you. Now, it's on what you don't have. It's on, uh, Something usually something negative about you that you just obsess over, and all your thoughts are either how to fix this about me or how to change this about me or how it's never going to get better for me. It's me, 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 me When the church goes and consoles this young man, I have a feeling they talk with him a lot about Jesus. Because when you start thinking about God and you start looking at the gospel and you start uh, listening to God's word, you realize it's not just about me. There's a lot more to this story. I am a minor character, right? But what Satan will want to (coughs) do... this is the next blank on your notes, is Satan misuses my guilt to condemn and incapacitate me. Satan misuses my guilt to condemn and incapacitate me. Uh, What Satan wants to do when you mess up is he wants to make failure part of your identity where you believe this is just part of who I am. I'm no good, I'll never be good enough, I don't think I can be forgiven, I'm not like others, and when you feel condemned, when you feel condemned, who is your focus on? It's on me, right? Let me ask you, if you're struggling today with guilt, if you're struggling with feeling guilty, here's a test. Ask, is my guilt making me more like Jesus or is my guilt making me less like Jesus? And that will help you decide, is this something that God is using positively in my life or is this something that Satan is misusing negatively in my life. If guilt is prompting you towards repentance and towards running to God, that's God using it. If guilt is causing you despair and to stay away from God because you feel dirty, that's Satan misusing it. So how is guilt showing up in your life and is it being used by God or is it being misused by Satan? Satan. Because guilt is one of those things, guys, if Satan can get you stuck in it, he'll keep you there for life. It's like flypaper. It's like flypaper. You get stuck to it, and you just don't move. It incapacitates you. If Satan can just get you to lay down and give up, he's won. And that's what he'll do with guilt. But here's the thing, guys. God doesn't want you to be guilty. God does not want you to live in guilt. God did not make guilt for you to live in it. It's not what it's for. It's kind of like a check engine light. If the check engine light comes on, it is not Christmas decoration. If the check engine light comes on, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to the shop. Now some of you do and some of you don't. Right? But you're supposed to go to the shop because the check engine light is not supposed to stay on. Right? You're supposed to go get it fixed so it'll stay off. That's what guilt is like. When you get this spiritual pain in your life, that's God in his infinite wisdom. He has designed it where you can be alerted that something is wrong. A check engine light comes on. But what you don't want to do is drive through life with your check engine light on. The point of it is to go get it fixed. If you are in spiritual pain, guys, you need to go get help. You need to go to the shop. You need help, right? And that's what the rest of the lesson today is going to focus on. But the whole basis of this, guys, when we're talking about guilt... We serve a God of forgiveness. We serve a God who his natural bent is he wants to bless you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to take you and help you become the person that he always meant for you to be. He's got stuff for you to do on earth. He's got a purpose for you. He's got people that he wants to use you to bless. He may have ministries he wants you to build. He may have churches he wants you to plant. There's all kinds of stuff that God has in mind for you, right? But... Guilt will just incapacitate you. It is so important that we rest in the forgiveness of God. It says in Micah 7.18, this is out of the message. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, where is the God who can compare with you wiping the slate clean of guilt? For mercy is your specialty. That's what you love the most. You guys heard that word justified? Okay? In the Bible, it's a big word. Justified, justification means your, your sins are forgiven. In the original Greek, uh, they used to, well, let me say it this way. 2,000 years ago, uh, they would, instead of having paper contracts like we do today for real estate or whatever, they would use stone because stone didn't decay. And if you were going to spend money to buy a building or something, you'd get your contract uh, chiseled in stone so that you'd have it there. And after a contract expired, say if the property was sold to another party, they would take that same slate, that same piece of stone that had the contract on it, and then they would take a long wedge and they would put it up at the top of the slate, and they would take a hammer and they would hammer that wedge down, and it would take all of those letters off of that contract where it was just a smooth piece of stone. And then they could could etch in the new contract. You want to know what the process of making that stone Smooth was called? It's called justification. That's what the word means. When you're justified, your slate is clean. That's where that phrase, clean slate, comes from. It comes from stone contracts on rocks. We'd make the slate clean so we can fill it back out, right? Justified, this is not on your notes, but it's good to remember. Justified, a good way to remember the the biblical concept of justified, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's a good way to remember that. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Now, if you've messed up super bad in life, you've messed up super horribly bad in life, you know you're not right with God, you know if you stood before God right now and He said, you know, were you with me or not on earth, you would be not, right? Right? It would not be a good day for you. You know that there's stuff that that you need to be forgiven for, right? Guess what? Guess what? You can be forgiven. You can be justified. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how unfaithful you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. When you turn to God in repentance, you can have your slate wiped clean. Now that's good news in the church. That's good news. Where is the God who can compare with you wiping the slate clean for guilt? For mercy is your specialty. That's what you love the most. Guys, if you are struggling with Satan misusing guilt in your life, Jesus Christ offers you forgiveness. You have to turn to him in repentance. It it ain't all just easy if you're letting go of things, right? But that's why he gives us the church. You don't do it alone. That's why he gives you the Holy Spirit. You don't do it alone. That's why he gives you his word. You have instructions. You're not alone, right? But we're supposed to be a family here at the church that's helping one another repent of sin, guilt, Will incapacitate you and keep you from repentance. So you've got to deal with your guilt. Part of what will help you deal with your guilt is trusting that this stuff we read in the Bible about forgiveness is true. When when Jesus says he forgives your sins and he justifies you when you turn to him in faith, it's true. So what is our job? If Jesus says I'm forgiven, what's my job? I need to accept that forgiveness. And I need to believe and trust that that what he says about me is true. We're going to uh, finish today with four essentials uh, that banish guilt and bring grace. But before we get into that, guys, I want us to firmly remember that we serve a God who is a forgiving God. We're going to take uh, communion together. Um, do we have that ready? Okay. Um, we take communion every Sunday here at the crossings because... Uh, that's why the early church met. Uh, we either take it in our assembly here or we'll take it in our small groups. Our small groups are not, uh, some, many are not meeting today with the adults. So we're going to take it in here. Um, but we do that because that's what the early church did. That's why they got together on Sundays. Sundays were, was the day uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's when the early church met. And one of the primary reasons they would meet together uh, was because Jesus, before he died, told his followers Uh, As they were eating a meal together, he took some bread and he broke it and he gave them all a piece and said, this is my body, take this in remembrance of me. Then he gave them all a drink of juice and said, this is my blood that's going to be spilled for you, take this in remembrance of me. And I would have been interested to sit around the table uh, at that moment because they didn't know about the crucifixion. This was before Jesus went to the cross. All of the stuff he was teaching them, he knew it was about to happen. They didn't know. Uh, And so they take this meal with him and then later... He is crucified. He is literally hung on a cross until he dies. But then after three days, he comes back from the dead. And he starts teaching them all the stuff that like he had taught them before, but they didn't get. Like he opened their mind to the scriptures and started helping them connect some dots. The whole story of the Bible is about Jesus, um, which is pretty amazing. But he kind of helped them see that and helped them see some other things. But but they knew that forgiveness was available to them because Jesus died on the cross for their sins. When Jesus died on the cross, guys, he, he, he gives us the opportunity. He takes all of our sin onto himself and he gives us all of his life. He takes all of our death. Guys, he, he takes all of our darkness. He gives us all of his goodness and he takes all of our bad. When we turn to him in repentance... And so that's the key, is turning to him in repentance. But guys, when we have done that, we are free from guilt. We don't have to go through the rest of life feeling condemned. Guys, when we turn to God in repentance, we, just, we, have, we, we get to enjoy his grace and his forgiveness and his reassurance, where we don't have to be shackled with guilt. So I'm going to pray. And as we take communion, guys, remember the bread. Remember the body of Jesus. His body was broken for you. The juice, remember his blood. His blood was spilled for you. As we take communion together, guys, let's just examine our hearts. And if, is there something in my life that's keeping me from Jesus? Is there something in my life that I need to confess? Is there something in my life uh, that is keeping me from being the person that God wants me to be? And what do I need to do? Do I need to talk to God? Do I need to talk to another person? Do I need to ask for help? What are some tangible steps I need to take to, to, to get better? Um, Guys, this is this is open. Uh, I'm gonna pray and then uh, we will take communion and then we'll finish our lesson. God, thank you for today. Help us to remember as we take uh, the bread that represents your body that was broken and the juice that represents your blood that was spilled. God, you, you felt real physical pain and you bled real blood for us. Help us to remember we serve a God who made himself a human and came into the world and died on a cross for us. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So we'll close today with four essentials to dealing with your guilt properly. Uh, We want to give you some practical things. Anytime we open the Bible, guys, we want to think about how to apply it to our lives. Uh, Because if we're just talking about history or ideas and not really making practical application, uh, we're missing the point. Um, The the whole point of Scripture is, is to apply and transform as a result. And I can deal with my guilt in a godly manner when, number one, I choose to admit my guilt. I choose to admit my guilt. Guys, if, if something is a source of guilt in my life, I tell it to God in prayer, but I also tell it to another person. Uh, admitting requires me to be honest. And when I say another person, I would, I would recommend, I think it's wise, to be a spiritual leader, somebody that loves God, that's close to God, uh, not just, you know, anybody. Um, but when we talk about our sin, when we, if, if you're feeling guilty about something you've done, talk about it. Like, talk to somebody about it. It's scary, though, right? Why is it scary? Anybody in here want to look good? I do. I want to look good. I don't want to have no problems. Problems are for other people, right? Not for me. It, it's hard to admit your shortcomings, we don't want to look bad. It's pride that keeps us from talking. David struggled with this. Guys, that, that, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about David here in a second, but David struggled with pride. He says in Psalm 32, he eventually learned the value of confession. He said, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was. This is David. My dishonesty made me, what, miserable, and it filled my days with frustration. You notice that? I had this sin in my life, and I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I didn't want to look bad. And the end result, because I didn't want to look bad, is I felt like crap. I was miserable. That's what he says. I went through life, and I was miserable. Whenever you're living a double life, guess what? You're going to be miserable. Whenever you're going through life managing the expectations of others and just trying to look good, you're being fake, and you're going to be miserable. David realized this. Made me miserable, filled my days with frustration. All day and night, your hand was heavy on me. So he had this guilt that he was struggling with. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I'll confess them to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Dishonesty about sin didn't lead to anything good for David. It led to him being miserable, but admitting is what led to relief. Guys, but admitting requires me to be humble. It requires humility. We've got to humble ourselves. When we don't want to look bad, we won't be honest. When we don't uh, want anybody to think different about us, we won't be honest. Pride is the root of hiding stuff. That's all it is. If you're afraid to talk about what's going on in your life, it's because you're worried about what somebody's going to think about you, and that's just pride. Who are you thinking about? You, right? Common theme with pride is you're just thinking about you. You're not thinking about the people you could influence. You're not thinking about the good you could do if you got better. You're just thinking about you and how you want to stay comfortable, right? David's private sins are now public because he confessed them. We, we get to read about David's shortcomings in the Bible because he confessed them, Right? We're able to learn from David's shortcomings because he confessed them. If he had led them, just hid them the whole time, we wouldn't be talking about David today. Because David wouldn't have been right with God. And he wouldn't have left anything for us to learn from other than a bad example. But we have his good example because he got to understand confession was part of the process of getting better. And guys, David had stuff he needed to get better from. Some of you sitting in here today, you probably feel like there's stuff in your life if people knew what was going on, they wouldn't want to be your friend, right? Uh, And the truth is, uh, you would be shocked, I think, if you knew the stories of some of our church members, people that are sitting beside you. Uh, Guys, we've been through the ringer in here. There is every bit as much trauma in this room in families and abuse and drugs and like all kinds of horrible stuff that happens in life. There's all kinds of that in this room, okay? Um, People in this room, there's a mix. There are people in this room who have learned the value of confession and there are people in this room who have never confessed a sin in their life. There are people in this room who have grown and developed through major issues in life, and there are people in this room who could grow and develop, but they haven't told a soul about what's really going on in their life, and so they haven't taken the first step. Right? I'm speaking to a cross-section. Some of you in here, you're nodding an affirmation because you know this stuff is right. Some of you in here are just trying to figure it out. Okay? David... Was, went through a period in life where he also had to figure things out. He had to learn the value of confession because there was a time in his life where he didn't, right? There was one time in particular where I guess he went through a spiritual rut because he had been super blessed by God. He had been made king. He was rich. He was powerful. He had an army. Like, he had all this stuff. And then all his armies went off to fight a battle, and, and David decided he was just going to stay in. Normally the king, when the armies would go out to fight, the the king would lead them. Well, David decided he was just going to let the army do their thing and he was just going to stay home because he didn't feel like fighting. He just kind of wanted to hang out at the house. While he was hanging out at the house, he had the highest tower in the land and the Jews had their bathrooms on top of their roofs back then, their baths and stuff. And so because he had the highest tower in the land, he was able to look down on everybody else and he saw this woman bathing on top of one of the roofs down there, and he thought she was hot. And so he called his servants over and was like, Hey, go tell that girl, come, come see me. Well, they find out that this woman is married to one of his bodyguards, one of his friends, Uriah. David doesn't care, he so says, Send her up. Bathsheba comes to visit David. Yeah, her name's Bathsheba, I know it's funny. Um, she was taking a bath. Uh, she goes to visit David, David gets her pregnant, has sex with her, gets her pregnant. Not his wife, it's his friend's wife, gets her pregnant. Where's her husband? Well, he's out on the battlefield doing what faithful soldiers do. David's like, okay, I got her pregnant, what do I do? I need to call her husband home and have him go sleep with her for a couple of nights, and then we can just blame him for the baby, right? I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it up. He calls Uriah to come back from the battlefield. Uriah comes back from the battlefield. David says, hey, Uriah, good to see you. Welcome back. Hey, go hang out with Bathsheba for a couple of nights. Here, here's here's some drinks, right? Uriah, because his boys are out on the battlefield, feels guilty that David has brought him back home and is trying to get him to go sleep with his wife. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm supposed to be out on the battlefield. Uriah goes and sleeps by the gate at the city. He won't go home. So now David is like, okay, this is going to come out. They're going to know this baby's mine. He writes a letter. He hands it to Uriah, his friend. He says, Uriah, take this to your commander. Uriah doesn't know, but in that letter, it was instructions from David. King David, a man after God's own heart, who was such a good, godly man... It was instructions from King David given to Uriah that Uriah carried in his own hand a sealed letter. He didn't read it. It was a sealed letter he took to his commander. In that letter, it said, take Uriah to the most fiercest part of the battle, go into the middle of it, get him to start fighting, and then have all of our soldiers run away from him. And so guess what happened to Uriah? He got murdered. He got killed in battle, but it was planned because David wanted him to get killed to cover up his sin. You ever done anything like that? I've done some jacked up stuff. I haven't murdered anybody yet. I haven't murdered anybody. I have friends that have. I have several friends that have. Uh, So if you guys mess with me, just know, I know murderers. Um, I've never done that. And I'd like to say David felt really bad after this and went and confessed his sin, but that's not how it went down. It it went down because God inspired one of his prophets to go get up in David's grill. And then David had to decide what he was going to do after that. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, He gets busted and he admits everything. Okay, David does. This whole affair, this whole situation, humility and honesty are what allowed real help to enter his life because he says in Psalm 51, I admit my shameful deed. It's against you and you alone that I sinned and did this terrible thing. You saw it all and your sentence against me is just. You deserve honesty from the heart. This is David's conclusion After messing up, but then he handles it faithfully. He confesses it. Who's he speaking to here? It is against you and you alone that I sinned and did this terrible thing. Who's David talking to? He's talking to God. Guys, that's the trick to getting over your sin is, do you love God enough to care that you offended God? That's that's the difference between faith or not. Is do you care enough that you offended him? That's godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. David here exhibited, like he he loved God. That's one thing you can say about him is he really loved God. What's the greatest command in the whole Bible? Love God. That's it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus says all the law and the prophets, the whole Bible, hangs on these two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. David loved God. He screwed up horribly. But then he comes in and he has a real heart change leader and he responds faithfully in godly sorrow. He responds faithfully in repentance. And as a result, his guilt subsided. He messed up Horribly. And his guilt subsided. Now, there's, there's other guys that messed up horribly, and they didn't. Uh, another example is Ammon. King Ammon, he was another Israelite king. Uh, he had a dad named Manasseh, who was also a king. Manasseh was a horrible man for 90% of his life, and he ended up coming to faith late in life uh, and became you know, a follower. But then his son just continued being a, a not good guy. It says, unlike his father Manasseh, King Ammon did not humble himself before the Lord, Ammon increased his guilt. So here you see David, his guilt subsides because he repents and turned to God. Ammon, another guy who messed up bad, he did not repent. He continued in sin, and it says his guilt increased instead of subsiding. Guys, here's the truth. This is a promise from the Lord. James 4 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is a promise from God. Do you want to make God your friend? Be humble. Do you want to make God your enemy? Be prideful. That's it. And that's the difference when you're talking about uh, repenting and, and, and dealing with guilt. That's the difference. Humility or pride. Are you going to turn to God and know your place and let him be God? Or am I going to continue saying, I know better. And I'm going to tell you how to, you know, here's, here's my wisdom and what I think about things. Shut up. Like, listen to God. That's what David would say to you. Be quiet and Listen. And, and be humble before him. Part of being humble is, uh, is believing what God says about forgiveness too. You got to believe what the Bible says. If, if Jesus says you were forgiven if you turn to him in repentance, it doesn't mean you're not. It's part of being faithful is, is, is believing that. Secondly, I can choose to deal with my guilt in a godly way when number two, I choose to ask God to help me. I choose to ask God to help me. In David's example, I ask God to help me have a pure heart and a right spirit. This is a good thing to pray for. In Psalm 51, David says, create in me a pure heart, God, and make my spirit right again. Uh, This whole Psalm, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, we've been coming out of those a lot. Those are all about penitence and guilt. So the whole context of that Psalm where David is saying, uh, you know, create in me a pure heart, make my spirit right again. The whole context of that is David dealing with guilt. Uh, Keep me strong by giving me a willing spirit. Guys, the cause of David's problem when it comes to guilt originated in the heart. It's the condition of the heart that leads to an execution of of action. Uh, If it's gonna come out of your life, it's gonna start in your heart. Okay, that's just the truth. If you don't address your heart issue... The same symptoms are going to show up over and over again until the heart issue gets dealt with. Um, secondly, I need to ask God to help me with obedience. I need to ask God in prayer, creating me a clean heart, pure spirit. I also need help with obedience. In Psalm 32, eight, nine, uh the Lord says, "I will teach you the way you should go. I will instruct you and advise you. Don't be stupid like a horse or a mule." which must be controlled with the bit and bridle to make it submit. Uh, Anybody here go watch donkey basketball? Okay, a few of us. I had never heard of donkey basketball until a couple of months ago when I got a flyer that one of our church members was going to be a donkey jockey. Uh, Tanner, he's not here today. But... um, Never heard of it. So it was this fundraiser that they did at this high school where they had firemen come and ride donkeys and Tanner's of firemen. And then who were the other guys? The police? So they had firemen versus police and donkey basketball. And if you don't know anything about donkeys, they don't listen. Um, and so it was really funny. You know, we bought tickets to go watch this thing. Uh, and you got like five on five. Each person has a helmet and like they sit on a donkey and they pass the basketball and try to play a game but the donkeys just ain't having it, right? So there's guys out there, like the donkey's sitting on its haunches on the basketball court. and This guy's like trying to yank it and there's all this chaos around and then one of them decides to take a crap on the court, you know, and like just all kinds of chaos everywhere. It was a lot of fun. But part of what made it so fun was how stubborn the donkeys were because these dudes, these are grown men, like my size, just yanking with all their might Not able to move this stubborn animal because it doesn't want to move. God's saying, don't be like that. God doesn't want you to be like that. He doesn't want to have to jerk you around. Right? If somebody is constantly having to jerk you around just to make make you do basic faithful stuff, your heart's not right. Right? Like if it's like pulling teeth to get you to come to church or to come to small group, your heart's not right. If it's like pulling teeth to get you just to read your Bible every once in a while or uh, you know, talk about what's going on in your life or try to connect with people, because that's a heart problem. Um, and, and nobody can control your heart except you, right? If, if you want to act uh, stubbornly, um, and, and not submit, God will let you do that. You guys realize God will let us act that way. But what's it going to do? It's not going to be good. You know, it's not going to be good. Um, God instructs, we have to submit. And the truth is, life is so much better when we do life God's way. When I start to think that I know better, that's when I get myself into trouble. Um, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, you will never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. Confess them and give them up and God will show you mercy. Confess and give them up. There has to be a change, right? There has to be a repentance. And that takes help a lot of times. Whenever I became a Christian, um, I, I'd been doing drugs for a long time and I had a lot of bad habits. Um, but then I, I decided after looking at the Bible and sort of kind of understanding what God's expectations or what God says was a good life, I turned away from all that stuff. Man, that was hard to do, though, when you've done nothing but drugs every day for years, and all your friends, that's all they do. You know what I had to do? I had to move. I had to move away. I had to make new friends. Uh, I had to really do a lot of uncomfortable things just to kind of get, get my life back on track because I had... I had spent so many years messing my life up. You know, when you've spent years messing something up, it doesn't get better overnight. You guys realize that? It's a process. But man, uh, I got serious about following God, and I'm jacked up. Like any of you guys know me, you know I'm a mess. But I got serious about following God, and I started trying to do it as best I could, and I, I was confessing when I would mess up. I wasn't a model in that, but guys, I did. I I talked about my sin and stuff that was going on and I was able to get help. But until you make that serious commitment to obey, I don't think your life is gonna change much. Like if you're here today and just kind of investigating faith, I'm just telling you, if your investigation of faith is just kind of, we're gonna add this to the shelf, of life, uh, it's not going to do anything for you. That's not how God works. Jesus is not an item to add to the shelf of your life. Jesus is the shelf. Amen? And until you start living that way and learning that, until you let Jesus be the one that orients everything else in your life, it's not going to work. Relationship with God is not meant to be passive, And it's not meant to be a minor part of your life. If your relationship with God is passive or minor in your life, you don't have a relationship with God. If you have a relationship with God, it will be all encompassing. I don't mean that you will be perfect, I don't mean that you won't struggle with sin. But your relationship with God, if you have a genuine relationship with God, it will be a primary part of your life. It will not be secondary, and it will not just be something that's on the shelf. Whenever you have an encounter with Jesus, and you realize he is the king of everything, the, the, the story of the world is his story. I get to be part of his story. It is his story. He is the actor. He is the primary character. He is the hero. He is the one whose name we talk about. He is the one to be remembered. He is central to everything. As when I realize that, and I realize my place in the story, honestly, if I can just wrap my mind around... My place in in this whole grant, it it makes confession way easier. Because I realize it's not about me, right? It's not my story. I can deal with my guilt in a godly way when number three, I choose to invite God's people to help me. I choose to invite God's people to help me. Uh, I mentioned earlier, David messed up with Bathsheba. And uh, he just went on with life. After he slept with this woman and murdered her husband, he just went on with life. Now, he was racked with guilt, but he didn't tell anybody about it. And so one day, God sent Nathan, a guy named Nathan, to David. Nathan was a prophet. And Nathan came to David and told him a story. He said, hey, King David, I want to tell you a story. There was a really poor man... And the only possession he had in the world was this little lamb. And this man loved this lamb. He took care of this lamb. He nurtured this lamb. He loved this lamb so much. It was his favorite pet. He would even like sleep with it in his bed and share meals with it and stuff. Like this was, he loved this thing like it was his kid. Like it was a child. And then there was a wealthy man next door who had all kinds of sheep. He had thousands of them. He was the wealthiest man in the land. He had everything he could think of next door to this little poor guy that just had this little lamb. Well, one time the wealthy man had friends come in from out of town. And he decided he was going to have a meal for his friends that came in from out of town. And he thought to himself, I could kill one of my sheep and give it to my friends, but I don't want to. I want to go steal that guy's sheep and give it to my friends. And so this guy goes and he steals the poor man's pet lamb and he kills it and cooks it and feeds it to his guests. Nathan said, King David, what should be done to that rich man who treated that poor man that way? David said, that man should be cut up into pieces. He should be punished horribly. And then then we get to the punchline. You want to know what the punchline is? Nathan said, King David... You are that man. You had a soldier who had one thing in life, one thing in life. You are the king. You have all this stuff. You got concubines. You got all this. Stuff. He had one thing, and you took his one thing. He said you are that man. How do you think David felt in that moment? How do you think he felt in that moment? He felt low. And he knew that Nathan had been sent to him by by God. And guess what? This is what led to David repenting right here. Was Nathan coming and getting up in his grill. Guys, sometimes God will send people into your life that give you a message. Just for you. Because there's somebody that has the spirit of God in them. But they also know you. And God, through them, gives you a message. What are you going to do when somebody gives you a message? From God, you can either listen or not. You can listen or not. David responds faithfully. He was a good example in this. Guys, he screwed up bad. He was a bad example in that. But when he gets convicted, he responds faithfully, and he's a good example in that. Guys, Galatians 6, this is what we're told to do when somebody screws up. Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that means you're a Christian. Should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We are told when somebody's struggling in sin, go, go, go intervene, go say something to them. That's exactly what we see Nathan doing here. Uh, and This isn't on your notes, but uh, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, and 14, I think we have it on the screen, okay. Uh, then David said to Nathan, this is after... Nathan busted David out. This is what happens right after. He says, "Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. That's tough right there, man. The kid that Bathsheba got pregnant with died. And this was punishment from the Lord. Here, it says it in the Bible. Not every baby that dies is punishment from the Lord, okay? I know we've had miscarriages and things like that in here. Don't take this as my miscarriage was God punishing me. Please don't. I didn't say that. In this case, this was punishment from the Lord. And so David screws up horribly. He admits his guilt but then he still has to deal with some consequences. And just because you confess your sin, it does not mean there may not be consequences you have to deal with, right? I know people that have screwed their lives up on drugs and gotten their kids taken away. And they end up getting back, they get off drugs, but they still have to deal with the consequences of their kids getting taken away. I know people who've lost marriages. I know people who've lost... You know, I've had health issues and all kinds of stuff because of sin. Just because you repent and get right with the Lord does not mean there may not be consequences. There may be. Okay, I don't know the situation, but there may be. But God can work and will work. And David, man, how do you think it felt for him to hear that his baby was going to die? It felt horrible. You know what he did? He went and cried for days. He went and cried for days and then the child dies and then guess what David did he got up and he went and got something to eat and his servants came and were like David you've been crying and you haven't eaten for like two weeks and your baby just died and now you're eating what's going on and David said you know what I know I'm gonna see that kid in heaven and he, he moved on with life he had to deal with the consequences and even in dealing with those consequences, that guys, he still could have gotten a bad attitude and gotten mad at God about it. But what did David do? He chose to see how God was going to work in this situation. His baby died, but he didn't just think about that. He looked ahead. He looked ahead. He looked ahead. He looked ahead. Guess what? If you're depressed, guess what you're not doing? If you're depressed, you're probably not looking ahead. If you are racked with pain and guilt to the point that it's incapacitating your life, guess what you're not doing? You ain't looking ahead. You ain't looking at what Jesus did. You're looking at what you did, and you're looking behind you, right? David is looking ahead. He felt his guilt, but he's looking ahead. Uh, David found relief. James 5.16 says, If you have sinned, You should tell each other what you've done. Then you can pray for one another and be healed. That same promise is available to us, guys. If you're struggling with guilt, you can talk to somebody and you can get healing. And instead of looking behind you and focusing on what happened or the shortcoming, you can look ahead. Guys, and that's the difference between a depressed life and a a happy life a lot of times. It's just the ability to do that. Look ahead and have something to look forward to. Here's what we have to look forward to. We'll close with this. I can deal with my guilt in a godly way when number four, I choose to embrace God's forgiveness. I choose to embrace God's forgiveness. In Acts 2.38, uh, Peter is talking to a group of people who had sinned against the Lord. They had killed Jesus. Peter says, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. All right. You want to be right with God. It says right here, Repent and be baptized. What does repentance mean? Uh, Repentance means a turning away from sin. It literally means change of mind. It's the Greek word metanoia. Meta means change. Noia means mind. It means you start to see your sin the way God sees it. So if God says something is wrong, what do you think about that something? You guys awake? Think it's wrong. If God says something is right, what do you think about that? You think it's right, right? You listen to God. That's what it means. Um, I align my mind with God. As a result of starting to see my sin the way God sees it, what do I do? Do I run into it? No, I stay away from it. Because when I start to see this as deadly poison, I don't go and run into it, right? That's repentance. Baptism is a reenaction of the death, burial, and resurrection. Um, If you wanted to become a Jew back in the first century, if you were a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, you had to be baptized to become a Jew. A lot of people don't know that. Baptism started in Judaism. It was how uh, they would bring Gentile proselytes into their religion is they would go through this baptism ceremony. The Jews were already familiar with baptism by the time you get to Acts 2. That's why it wasn't crazy when Peter uh, says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, they already associated baptism with new birth, new identity, because they had used it for hundreds, thousands, or a couple thousand years with, with Gentiles. It was a familiar practice to them. Uh, Peter puts a new twist on it. This is, this is how we're going to connect to Jesus now. He says, if you will die to yourself... Be buried with Jesus, just like Jesus was buried, and then rise again, just like Jesus rose from the dead. Your sins are going to be forgiven. Baptism is a line in the sand. It was uh, the entry point for the early church. You were not a Christian until you were baptized. That was not confusing in the first century. That was fact. Uh, It was a line in the sand. God wants us to have a line in the sand Because he does not want us, one of the reasons, he does not want us going through life guilty. When you are baptized, when you give your life to Jesus in repentance, you are forgiven. There is no need for you to go through life wondering, am I forgiven? There is no need for you to go through life wondering, am I saved? There is no need for you to go through life wondering, does God really love me? If you want that redemption, if you want that forgiveness, if you want that relationship with God, if you want that good life that Jesus promises you that you can have, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Guys, in Isaiah 118, God says, Come now, let us argue this out, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stain of your sins I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. Guys, that's the word God has for you today. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. If you turn to God in repentance, he'll forgive you today. But that's up to you. You get to decide. If you want to live life the way you want to live life, God will give you the freedom to do that. You can be your own God with the little G the rest of your life, and he will leave you alone. That can be your choice. But if you want the best life you can have, if you want the the life you were designed to have by your creator... Who knows better than you if you want purpose, if you want a positive impact, if you want your family to be with you in heaven, if you want to make a difference in the lives of your friends, if you want to be a source of hope instead of a source of despair? If you want to be a source of light instead of a source of dark and a source of life instead of a source of death, turn to Jesus Christ. Because he is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the God of the universe. He is going to come back someday, and he's going to make everything right. And our job between now and then is to make this world a better place until our Savior comes back. He's in charge, and he's going to make it right. Man, let's just, let's just bang it out now for him the best we can. Guys, we are planting churches We are intersecting with people in the community that are hurting. We are helping people overcome drug addiction. We just got uh, uh, our stuff done for our nonprofit we're starting for the rehab. Uh, We've got a church plant team that's forming before the end of the year. We're looking at other locations to to start new works. We've got campus ministries that we're starting. There's all kinds of good stuff that God is doing, and that's going to continue. But for you personally in this room... Guys, if you're just visiting the crossings, I want to say welcome to you. I don't know your story, many of you. Uh, I know some of you are investigating faith. Some of you uh, are in different spots. But I want you to know you are in a safe place today. Uh, But you're also in a place where we're going to challenge you. Because if you come in here trying to encounter God, we're going to let you know what God says. We're going to let you know God's expectations. We're going to show you God's word. And then it's going to be up to you whether you listen or not, right? Right. Uh, but we really, really want you to follow Jesus because we, we really believe he's got good things in store for you and, and he's got a plan for your life. I want to invite everybody to pull out a cardstock piece of paper. It's called a communication card and we're going to close out uh, with that communication card today. Um, in a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song. And during that song, you can fill that card out and that card has all kinds of things uh, To to share on there if you you want to get help with something, or if you just want to get some more information or plug in, uh, I'll let you read that and fill that out. I do want to say if you're investigating faith uh, and you want to take that a step further, check on there that you'd like a personal Bible study, and we'll have a couple of our people get together with you, and they'll just, it's, you know, you open up the Bible and look at it and say, hey, what do you think about that? Uh, And that's also a great place if you have questions, if you've got struggles, you know, maybe you don't even know if you can believe in God. Uh, That's okay. Like, just indicate that on there and and we'll have some people help you. I do want to encourage you if you're struggling with guilt, if if the stuff I talked about today is kind of bothering you, uh, don't sit on that. Uh, If you're struggling with that today, probably you've never talked to anybody about it. There's probably something that's going on that you're struggling with. I want to encourage you to talk to somebody about it. And just let the chips fall where they may. Talk with somebody that is spiritually further down the road than you are and get some help with that. Uh, That is a big part of why the church is here. I'm gonna pray, and then like I said, we'll sing a song. During that song, you can fill that card out. Then we'll sing one more song and pass some baskets at the end, and you could drop your card in that basket. Uh, Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your love and your grace and your forgiveness. I pray that we will believe what you say and honor you with obedience, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.